Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, looking at the stanza, um, verses 33 through 40, and we began, Lord willing, we'll complete it tonight. Let's read verses 33 through 40 together as we look into God's word. The scripture says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Begin looking at this portion and just a title for it, Prayers Pursuing Godliness. We've looked at the first petition and then from verse 34 down through verse 37. Tonight, we'll look at verse 38 through 40, but just as a reminder here, this is a humble prayer to the Lord for instruction. Teach me. Teach me. Verse 34, give me understanding, but not just for instruction, for strength, the power to walk in God's path. In verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. And as we pray for understanding, of course, we're not praying to no end. We're praying to that end, that we might obey God, that we might do his will. We need his strength, though, to walk in God's path. And then there's a petition for a godly disposition of heart in verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. The assumption there is that we have a heart. Of course, the word teaches us that our heart is not naturally inclined to obey God. We're naturally, by our fall into sin, inclined to evil. When God saves a person, he makes them a new creature in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is within, and he, by the Spirit, works in their heart. But we still can pray this prayer, I think appropriately, that God would change us, incline and bend us to do his will, as opposed to what we would do otherwise. And the Spirit is there to work, to help us, to strengthen us, to walk in God's path. But along that path, of course, we have many temptations. And uh, not only for dishonest gain, as he says in verse 36, but also vanity. I shared with you an extended uh, illustration from Pilgrim's Progress and I don't know if you if you weren't here, it's the list that Bunyan gives of all the things that could vie for our attention in this world that really aren't worth pursuing. When he describes vanity fair, he says this fair 
are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, performance, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts. As harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. Moreover, at this fair, there is at all times to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, rogues, and that of every kind. Here to be seen, too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and that of a blood-red color. And how did the prince of princes go through that fair? He had to go through that fair. But he didn't buy a thing. And of course, he set the pattern for us as we walk through this world. And I just challenged us to think about praying that prayer. I don't know if you did in the last week, but it's not just a prayer for last week. It's a prayer for this week. Lord, turn away my eyes from beholding, looking at vanity. What are you living for? What is life all about? Are you laying up for yourself treasures in heaven or are you laying up for yourselves treasures on earth? Are you preoccupied with the things of this age? Or is it God's ways that you're seeking revival in so that you value what he values? You pursue what he desires. The temptation was there this last week. It will be there this week. It'll be here every week that we're in this world. Every day we have something to live for. So what are you living for? And the challenge for us is to really make that mentality of eternal things and that eternal focus, our focus, but we need help with that. And that's why he asks the Lord, turn away my eyes. Our hearts tend to follow our eyes. And revive me in your ways. Give me life to walk in your ways so that I will do your will and value what you value. I said this is a great prayer. After you've sinned against the Lord, obviously we pray for confession. But we also pray for protection and the protection that we pray for deliver us from evil. This prayer, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity, is a prayer like that in that we're seeking not to follow that which is vanity. That would be evil if we pursued it and followed it in our life. So I just want to encourage you, and again, if you didn't pray that prayer, I want to encourage you to think along those lines because this is really having the mindset, I think Pilgrim's Progress is the right picture, the mindset of a pilgrim. A pilgrim is not going to gather or amass to himself or herself things that are going to weigh them down and keep them from achieving their goal. And uh, Horst Pilgrim went through all sorts of things as he was on his way to the celestial city. That was his hope. And there were companions who came along, some who helped him, others who came along and weren't so helpful. But that prayer, turning away my eyes from looking at vanity, is certainly one for this world. Notice in verse 38, establish your word to your servant. Establish your 
promise, as someone might translate it, is the word that can be translated just simply word. But in some contexts, the thought of a promise uh, is in view. So establish your word or your promise to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Keep your promise to me. Keep your promise to me. It's a humble prayer. He refers to himself as your servant. So he's in relationship with the master as he asks God to establish his word. He's asking God to keep his word in such a way that he will fear God in an even greater way. Lord, keep your word. Of course, God always keeps his word. Do we always see it when he keeps his word? I think there's some illustrations from scripture that would help up to encourage us that God does keep his word. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. Keep a finger here as we turn to a couple passages. Genesis chapter 12. What did the Lord say to Abram? Verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from the land, excuse me, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Then I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You look over... In chapter 15, the Lord had promised to bless the earth through him, and obviously there's an indication of a seed. Verse 15, verse 1 of chapter 15, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, O Master Yahweh, What will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, no seed to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but the one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And then he showed him the stars. When you look at Abraham's life from the time that God called him to the time that God finally fulfilled his promise was a long time. Decades. The promise was made. The promise was kept. But for decades, he's having to trust the Lord and the word of the Lord is tested. It's tried. Turn over to Genesis 21. God's promise to Abram, now his name is Abraham, reflecting God's promises. Now Sarai is Sarah. Both of those names reflect the promises that God had made. And look at verse 1 of Genesis 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abram in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Of course, Abraham calls his name Isaac. 
He's circumcised when he was eight days old. Look at verse five. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And how happy is he? Well, the day he's weaned, there's a great big feast for his son. God kept his promise. God keeps his promises. We could look at the life of Joseph as he's given a dream that his parents and his brothers would bow down to him. Remember the symbolism of the dream? He's given that dream and his family kind of showed contempt. His brothers showed contempt of him. His father rebuked him, but then took note. His father took note of the dream. He was 17 years of age when that took place. He was 30 years when he stood before Pharaoh after having been sold into slavery by his brothers. Story is told to his father that he's dead. We know the story of Joseph. He ends up in jail. He's in jail for some time, but God brought that to pass. Now, just because his He stands before Pharaoh doesn't mean the word is fulfilled, but he was encouraged even as he now stands before Pharaoh. God has given him that place that eventually his family would bow down to him. And what did he name his sons? Gave both of his sons a name with a divine interpretation. Turn over to chapter 41. It's as God is fulfilling His word, Joseph is seeing God accomplish his word, although it's not fully fulfilled. Look at verse 50. As the year of famine comes, we know the story. I'm assuming we know the story of Joseph. It says in verse 50, now before the year of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of own, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and my fa- all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And that famine, of course, that came, brought Joseph's brothers, and the day came where they did bow down to him. But again, you're talking about a passage of many years before God's word was fulfilled. We could look at David's life, too. He was a youth when he was anointed king, but he was eventually anointed king over Israel by the people when he was 30 after severe trials. So does God keep his word? There's three instances, and we could find many more in Scripture where God made a specific promise to someone and God kept his promise. God always keeps his word. The prayer that David makes in Psalm 119, verse 38, is establish your word to your servant. Show me that you keep your promises. You latch on to a promise of God Ask him to keep that promise so that you will fear him. That's what he's saying there at the end of that verse. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. That is, when God keeps his word, he produces his fear in our hearts. We have reverence for him, not slavish fear, but respect, worshipful honor, and devotion. 
So do you fear God? Do you want to fear him more? Spurgeon said in his work on Psalm 119, we recommend this whole verse to any devout person whose tendency is towards skepticism. That's obviously in contrast with faith. He says, for it is an excellent prayer for use in times of unusually strong misgivings. So I'd put it this way, humbly ask God to demonstrate the truthfulness of his word so that you might fear him more and serve him more. You want to serve the Lord more? Because when you understand and know that God's word is true and God is true and God is real and he's at work in your life, it produces a devotion to him, a fear of him. But there are, of course, times when we don't see God at work and we get discouraged or we get skeptical and we don't serve him like we ought to. But when God is at work and we see it, it's a blessing because it produces in us that fear, that devotion. Charles Bridges in his commentary on this chapter said, if my assurance be well-grounded, it will ever be accompanied with holy fear. The influence will be known by standing more in awe of God's word, having a more steady abhorrence of sin. Those two things go together, fear of God, fear of God's word, and abhorrence of sin. What is it said of Job that he feared God and turned away from evil? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy is understanding. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but pride and arrogance, forward mouth in the evil way, I hate. So fearing God and turning from sin go hand in hand. He's looking for the heart attitude that produces the holy life. That's why I say this is pursuing godliness in prayer. This is what's taking place in these prayers. Bridges goes on to say, in addition to an abhorrence of sin, when we stand in awe of God's word, we also have a dread of grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Thus, this filial or this childlike fear produces a holy confidence, while confidence serves to strengthen fear, and their mutual influence quickens devotedness to the work of the Lord. Lord, help me to fear you more. Show me the truthfulness of your word. Keep your promises to me. And God, of course, will keep his promises, but it's one thing to, for him to keep them. It's another thing for us to see them as he keeps them and then be encouraged by it. And if we're praying for it, the Lord's going to answer that prayer. He loves it when we fear him more. I just want to encourage you to pray that the Lord would show the truthfulness of his word to you so that you will fear him more and live in accordance with his teaching. Look at verse 39. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Or that word ordinances is a word that's translated judgment. Turn away my reproach or my disgrace, which I dread. This is one of those verses that if you're studying through the psalm, you just got to take some time 
meditate on it, get some help to see what exactly is David saying here. We don't use that word reproach a lot. We might use the word disgrace, but it's a disgrace that David dreads. And he says, it's my reproach. So he's owning it. And then as he makes that petition, he then says something about the judgments of God, that they're good. By nature, they're righteous, of course, they're good. So if I could put it this way, just to give a contrast, there are two kinds of reproach or disgrace. There's a disgrace that can be gloried in, and there's a disgrace that we rightfully fear. Uh, I'll put it this way for that first one again. There is a shame and reproach that we can gladly bear. What's that? It's the shame and the reproach of the cross. It's being associated with Christ. It's holding fast to him. That's one that we would gladly bear because we know that that's just part of knowing Christ and knowing his salvation. We glory in the cross because of what God did for us in the cross. But that's that's like saying we glory in the the electric chair, right? I mean, it's a place of execution, but it's what God accomplished there. And yes, Jesus despised the shame because of what he was doing. He was bringing salvation. The disciples, as they were flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 5 and released, it says they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name or disgrace. And every day in the temple from house to house, they kept on right, right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So there is that kind of shame, the shame and disgrace for our association with God. The world hates God. I don't think that's the kind of shame that David is talking about here. He's talking about a shame and disgrace that he dreads that he fears. And I believe what he's talking about is the shame and disgrace for sin in his life. That if I live in such a way as to bring shame and disgrace upon me, it will also bring shame and disgrace upon God for whose word I stand, in whose word I believe. I represent God. So David is praying that God's ordinances would be regarded good, but good through him. That his life would not be disgraced, that he would not bring disgrace to God by his disobedience. When you think about the shame and disgrace for sin, there, of course, are many examples of those who sinned in Scripture, and there was some kind of disgrace that was brought upon them. Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it. He couldn't enter the promised land. That was a shameful thing. And I say that about Moses. Moses uh, far surpasses us in terms of his service to the Lord. He met with the Lord. He was unlike many other servants of the Lord, but he's made out of the same stuff, and he sinned against the Lord. Brought disgrace. God disciplined him. Achan secretly stole what God forbid and he was disgraced in the end of his life as he's executed, and a pile of stones is put over him and his family and all of his stuff. The troubler of Israel, the valley 
of Achor, I believe it is. It's disgrace in his death. And of course, David did bring disgrace upon himself when he committed adultery, when he murdered Uriah. And what did Nathan say in the context of his rebuke? That David had by his actions brought about an opportunity for the enemies of God to blaspheme. And that's what he feared. That's what he feared. So this is really a holy aspiration. I don't want to sin against God and then have the results not only come to me, but then reflect upon the Lord. He asks the Lord to turn away his reproach, which is not just remove the consequences for sin, but to help him live in such a way so that he doesn't bring disgrace upon the name of God, and in the context, it's the word of God, because he says, for your judgments or your ordinances are good. Bridges, again, I, I find Bridges and Spurgeon, two trusty guides going through this psalm together. They're helpful. There's Thomas Manton, who wrote, preached a sermon on every single verse. So if you want to read Manton, you're going to take a lot longer. Puritan, uh, helpful, but uh, nevertheless, a little bit longer and in detail on every verse. That was It's a challenging one to read through. But Bridges said, None that feel their own weakness, the continual apprehension of danger, the tendency of their heart to backslide from God and to disgrace that worthy name by which they are called will think this prayer unseasonable or unnecessary. Are you weak? We're all weak. Is there danger around? Of course there is. Do we have a tendency to backslide from God? Yes. Do we have the potential of disgracing God's worthy name? Yes. Well, this is a helpful prayer. Lord, Turn away my reproach, which I dread. Don't let me dishonor your name so that people look poorly upon the gospel or the truth or your word. Obviously, in the context, it's the word of God, which is associated with God. We want to bring honor and glory to God through our lives. And even if the world should cast shame on us, if it's because we're living for Christ, that's actually a glory. Right? You Christian, you little Christ, a pejorative that actually became a compliment. You friend of sinners, another insult that became a compliment because it testified to their relationship with those that God would show grace to. So do you long for God's word to be glorified as good? It's a wonderful prayer to pray. Look at the last verse here in this portion. Behold, I long for your precepts. I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Notice back in verse 37, revive me, end of the verse, in your ways. Uh, as you read through the psalm, you'll see that revive me, revive me, revive me, revive me. Uh, look down at verse 154 in the psalm. I have to turn over a couple pages. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. 
Verse 156, great are your mercies, O Lord, revive me according to your ordinances. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. So it's a petition for life. Revive me through your righteousness. We'll talk about that in a moment, but look at verse 40, the first part of the verse. Behold, I long for your precepts. Again, this is David praying. He's speaking to the Lord, and he's giving testimony of what he wants, what he is passionate for, what he is looking for and hoping for. And certainly it's not just the knowing of them, but the doing them of them. It's God's precepts. It's his instruction. Someone called it, Uh, his rules for personal conduct. That's what he longs for. Uh, If you desire something strongly, persistently, that's the idea of this word. I remember when we had soccer practice this time of year and our coach used to have us run to the field, run while we were at the field and run back and the field was a couple miles away. And when we had to run at the field, we were running these, uh, people call them suicides or line drills. You run to the goalie box, back, half line, back, other goalie box, back, end line, back, seven, eight, nine times in one practice, in addition to running, right, back and forth from the field. And man, that jug of water, that five-gallon jug that was for the whole team, you were just waiting till it was your turn to stick your mouth into that. You're longing for it. What is David longing for here? What is he persistently desiring and strongly desiring? God's instruction so that he can rule his conduct or that his conduct can be ruled by God's ways and not his own. In other words, it's not a grief to keep God's precepts. It's a joy to keep God's precepts. He's longing for them. This is the same attitude of those who in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was speaking about when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So it's a good sign when someone longs for God's precepts, to long to obedience or, or for obedience to God's precepts the sign of spiritual life. Bridges, Charles Bridges said, a longing after the precepts marks the character of the child of God and may be considered as the pulse of the soul. It forms our fitness and ripeness for heaven. So it really does test us to hear David say this because we have to ask ourselves, do we long, do I long for God's precepts? Or is this a burdensome thing? John The apostle said his commandments are not burdensome. To a child of God, they're a joy. Now, we don't find the ability to obey in and of ourselves. We need God's help. And so that's why he asks, Lord, I long for your precepts, but revive me through your righteousness. He's asking God for vitality, strength to be able to, and this is the way I would take this at the end there when it says through That word could be translated as it is through. It also could be translated in. And the way that I'm taking the end of that verse, the way that I would interpret it is he's talking about the way of God's righteousness. It's the conduct that he wants to live in. It's equivalent to the precepts of God. 
a person who is righteous or who is doing what is righteous is doing what God has said. They're obeying God's word. And he needs life to be able to do that. He needs strength to be able to do that. Just as an illustration for someone who revived after God gave them something. I was studying this word and uh, there's a prayer that Samson prays. And after he prays the prayer, God answered his prayer and he revived. You know that story? Probably the only, I was thinking to myself, it's the only song or poem about a jawbone of a donkey, maybe you'll ever find. That's in Judges, a song about the jawbone of a donkey. Because he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And then he composed this song with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey. I've killed a thousand men. That's an exciting poem. When he finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and he named that place Ramath Lehi. Then he became very thirsty and he called to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He was, he felt in danger of dying after, I guess that took a lot out of him to kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Would any of us, God had given him supernatural strength. But then in answer to that prayer, the scripture says, God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. Sort of like what he did in the desert, provided water in the wilderness. And that's what he benefits from. It says, when he drank, his strength returned and he revived. Therefore, he named it En Hekore, which is in Lehi to this day. And that name means the spring of him who called. So that testimony, that water source is now a testimony to someone's prayer that God answered and brought strength to him as he drank the water and was revived after serving God. Now, if God provides that kind of strength for a servant of his who's doing physical battle, is he going to provide strength for us if we're doing spiritual battle? We're seeking to obey the Lord. We long for God's precepts. We long to do his will. And we say, revive me in your righteousness. Revive me so that I might obey you. And you see how many times we looked at some of the times, not all the times that David prays that prayer. He's repeatedly praying for life, for vitality, for strength. Spurgeon said, David often pleads for quickening, but never once too often. We need quickening every hour of the day. For we are sadly inclined to become slow and lethargic in the ways of God. It is the Holy Spirit who can pour new life into us. Let us not cease crying to him. The creation of life is a divine work, and so is the increase of it. And then he says, never let us forget to pray for quickening in each and every duty. Augustine said, command what you will, Lord, but give what you command. Give the strength to obey. Are you praying to the Lord, telling him, Lord, I long for your precepts. I want to do your will. I, you could say it like the Lord said it, I delight to do your will. 
oh my God, your law is within my heart. And it may be, but we don't find ourselves with the strength to, so we depend upon the Lord. We look to him in prayer and we ask him for the strength that we need. Revive me, revive me, revive me. Lord, give me life. When you find yourself lifeless, you don't have the strength to do what you know to be right. Ask the Lord to revive you, to give you the strength to obey him. You think he'll answer that prayer? Think he delights to answer that prayer? That his servant would be praying, Lord, give me the strength to obey you? I mean, he wants us to obey him. He's the source of our strength. That's a prayer that's going to be answered as we look to the Lord in faith. Well, let's close tonight by singing a hymn together and ask the Lord to draw us nearer to himself. 464. Stand together with me. Depending on the Lord, I think is certainly a theme here. This song testifies to it. Let's sing this. Song.